everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the State of the Universe. This week on the podcast, we have Dr. Ken Miller. Ken is a cell biologist and a molecular biologist at Brown University. He is a very renowned member of the scientific community and the science advocacy community who tries to change people's perception about the theory of evolution. There's a lot of science denialism that goes on in the world, whether it be climate change, whether it be flat earthers, whether it be evolution. And Ken has spent a large part of his career combating science denialism as it pertains to evolution. He's a dev- devout Roman Catholic, but he he tries to find common ground between his religious beliefs and evolution because oftentimes these two things are treated as opposing corners in a boxing match. You know, it's either religion or science, and he tries to find common ground there. He wrote three books, and then most recently this year, he published a book called The Human Instinct, How We Evolved to Have Reason, Consciousness, and Free Will. We talk at length about what it means to have free will, what is special about human beings, how we evolved to have consciousness, how we evolved to have reason and morality, and why that's important. And we talk, most importantly, about how special it is to be a member of the human species and why we are so special. Why, why is it that we do science? You know, these sorts of big questions that really define who we are as a species in the universe. There were some Patreon questions this, mo- this week for Ken, but I didn't get to any of them because we just talked. We just talked too much. We talked too much and for too long about important topics, and I just couldn't find the time to sneak in those Patreon questions, so I'm sorry, people. Apologize. But if you want to submit questions for upcoming guests, if you want to be a part of the conversation, go to patreon.com slash the state of the universe and show the support the show the show the show some support. The main overarching point is I thank you for tuning in. I thank you for being here. I thank you for listening. I thank you for being alive. I thank you for having a heartbeat. I thank you for evolving into the beautiful human being you are from a little tiny ape, a little baby ape, you know. A little, I don't know, maybe maybe somewhere along your genome you were a muscle. Maybe. Maybe you were. Maybe you were a tiny little single cellular organism living inside of a bison's loins. And if that's you, then I would have eaten you. I would eat you. Medium rare. So, accept that. Watch the show. Enjoy the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. Ken Miller, how's it going? Thanks for being here. Thanks for participating in this. That's going great. Happy to be there. And thank you very much for inviting me. You recently published a book. Um, it's not your first book. This isn't your first time down this road. And, and the, the book you published was The Human Instinct, How We Evolved to Have Reason, Consciousness, and Free Will. Can you give us a synopsis of, of the book? What, what, do you, what motivated you to write this? Uh, well, the synopsis is broad because you look at the subtitles, reason, consciousness, free will. Exactly. All the big uh, you write questions. write a book about any one of those things and, and a lot of other things. Um, but over the years, um, I've been involved in public advocacy for evolution, particularly for the teaching of evolution in American schools. Um, I'm the co-author 
of what is the most widely used high school biology textbook in the United States. Um, it's got a catchy title. It's just called Biology. I think I used it I, when you I was reading. Yeah, I think I did in like ninth grade. And at the time, and I'm sorry to say this, but at the time I probably didn't like it very much. Well, that's okay. I'll forgive you for that. Yeah. The, uh, the um, you know, I, I like to joke with people. I have, I have two daughters. Um, my oldest daughter, Lauren, was actually my first editor because when Joe Levine and I were signed up by a publisher to write a high school book, uh, my editor was really worried that everything I'd ever written was for scientific audiences. And he said, I want to know if you can write for 14-year-olds. And I said, well, look, I got a 14-year-old at home. So every time I write a couple of pages, I'll give it to Lauren. If Lauren understands it, everything's cool. Go ahead. If she doesn't, I'll rewrite it. Um, She's so willing suppose, to sit down and, and, man, I don't know if I would do that at 14. I'd be like, well, you know, well, you, maybe you're a little more rebellious than she was. But anyway, I, I guess it had a good effect on her because today she is a wildlife biologist who works for the Audubon Society in Massachusetts. Now, in terms of the effect of the textbook, um, my youngest daughter, Tracy, um, she the, the book had come out by the time she was in ninth grade. So she had to suffer the indignity of using her old man's textbook for uh, for biology freshman biology in high school and i always joke that tracy is the daughter of whom i do not speak because today she is a history teacher oh boy um, but uh so it, it didn't necessarily convert her to biology either but well, i'm sure she was happy having the solution manual around at all times well i actually kept that hidden and uh the uh, I suddenly discovered that all her friends uh, wanted to know if I had the answer keys and stuff like that. And actually, the most you know, I'm sorry to get off on a tangent here, but it's a pretty funny tangent. No, don't be. Uh, the, the most ter- the most terrified I've ever seen a teacher was when we had the parents open house at the beginning of the year, and uh, uh, the biology book was brand new, and Tracy's teacher knew very well that I was the author of the book she was using and I had to take the poor guy aside and say, look, you know, uh, I'm never going to challenge any grading that you do or anything like that on an exam. You won't hear from me. I won't override you. I won't be the authority. If there's anything I can help you with, Hey, that's cool. I'll be glad to do that, but don't worry. I'll stay out of your way. And that seemed to sort of, you know, put him at ease. Um, now the reason I bring this up is because, uh, Joel Levine and I from day one decided we were going to write our book centering on evolution as the central organizing principle in biology. So in addition to having a couple of chapters about evolution, evolution is sort of woven throughout the textbook in all sorts of different places. Um, That's made it very popular among educators, but it's also in certain parts of the country made it really controversial. So in many cases, I've had to go in front of state boards of education to defend our book against uh, uh, people who wanted to see so-called scientific creationism as part of the biology curriculum or intelligent design. Mm-hmm. Um, our book has had warning stickers placed on it to tell students that they, it contains evolution. It's a controversial idea. It's only a theory, not a fact, and that sort of stuff. Man, And, and, and twice, twice I've um, uh, been hauled into court. Well, I wouldn't say hauled in because I went voluntarily. But I've testified as a witness in two trials, federal trials, on the teaching of evolution in the schools. The best known one 
was in 2005. It was in Dover, Pennsylvania, and the case is called Kitts Miller versus Dover. Yeah, and that's was, actually you know, that, yeah. That's about Dover, Pennsylvania. Uh, right. That's, that's about an hour and a half away from where I grew up, and mm-hmm. I'm honestly surprised. I'll say this: I'm honestly surprised that there weren't more schools in that region who were trying to adopt this sort of policy to teach intelligent design alongside evolution. Well, I think I think a lot of them who might have been tempted were advised by their attorneys, uh, wait a minute here, this is going to be found unconstitutional, mm-hmm. um, it will be taken to court, we'll lose the case, we'll be stuck with a big legal bill. Uh, in Dover, the school board uh, decided to go ahead with that, and they actually had um, a public interest law firm called the Thomas More Legal Foundation, which um, is a Christian-oriented legal foundation. And they said, hey, we'll represent you in court. We'll defend you. We'll bring our experts in, and it will be at no charge to you. Um, so I think that emboldened them to go ahead. Um, the case, however, you know, was, uh, uh, you know, I my testimony and cross-examination took two days. Um, the case lasted, believe it or not, for seven weeks. Four books were subsequently written about this trial, and there were two TV specials, one by the BBC called A War on Science, and the better one actually was done by Nova, um, and it was called Judgment Day, and that uh, actually won all sorts of awards, including a Peabody Award for broadcast journalism. So so the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, I've been involved publicly in the defense of evolution around the country, testifying in front of school boards and trials, defending our textbook and, and that sort of stuff. And I've always been happy to do it. Yeah, um, I, uh, go I, ahead. I want to get back to the to talk about evolution, but I want to interject with something real quick. Uh, your uh, Dover, Pennsylvania is in York County, Pennsylvania. Right. Right. And so before the interview, I, I did some investigating into York County, Pennsylvania. There's this awesome climate survey that was put together by Yale. It's this interactive survey online, and I'll post the link down below. I've talked about it on here a bunch of times because I'm fascinated by it. And what the climate survey does is you can sort of go around the entire United States and and look at each county individually and see what the population of that county thinks about climate change. And so I went to Dover County or uh, York County, Pennsylvania, right. where Dover is, and and I I I see that the belief in climate change. Um, Global warming is happening, this question, was only answered yes by 63%. And then you have other questions like, this one's interesting. The question is, most scientists think global warming is happening. uh, York County, Pennsylvania, only 46% of participants said that most scientists think global warming is happening. This is very interesting because these numbers are below what the national average would be. And I, I wonder if these weird beliefs, these anti-science beliefs, are not necessarily just centered on on evolution or or this idea of religion versus science, but are systemic in the population itself. Uh, there's something about the way the population was educated that makes them not believe science in general, not believe I- scientists. I think I, I think that's correct, and I'm pretty sure the survey you're talking about was done uh, by Professor Dan Cahan at Yale, um, who has really looked into uh, – Cahan's a, a professor at Yale Law School, but 
his, his actual field is psychology. So he's actually an expert in human persuasion. And one of the things that, that he had a particular interest in whether or not people accept climate change. And uh, a, a large part of his research was devoted towards basically what would make people change their mind. And one of the things that he found, and this is almost word for word from one of his papers, is that bombarding people with statistics like 97% of scientists agree on something doesn't always win people over. And in fact, in many cases, it causes them to harden their views. Um, and he says, what you really have to do is to recognize that many people have a cultural connection to, could be church groups, could be communities, or could it, it, it could just be to a general chip on the shoulder attitude towards academics and what they call cultural elites and college professors and so forth that basically says, eh, you know, you're not that smart. I don't have to believe you. And Cahan said, what you really have to do to get people to change their minds about something like this is you have to understand why taking up a position embraced by the scientific community would threaten their cultural connection to the groups with which they identify. Now, in my own case, when I advocate for evolution, um, it's certainly not the first thing out of my mouth, but it often ends up um, that um, people will question me and I'll say, well, look, you know, I, yes, I am, in fact, a person of faith. I'm a, I'm a practicing Roman Catholic. And in mm -hmm. fact, there are many, many scientists who are people of faith who stand four square behind the evidence for evolution, as do I. And for many people, that helps a little bit. And I fall, with respect to evolution, not with respect to climate change, but with respect to evolution, I fall into the category that Cahan would call trusted messenger. And the reason for that is it's perfectly obvious, given my own background and beliefs, that I don't have an ax to grind against religion per se. In other words, the reason I'm defending evolution is not because I think faith in God is evil and I want to make you all atheists. The reason I'm defending evolution is because it's true. Um, yes. And it is a central underpinning in biology. And that trusted messenger idea is important. So it doesn't surprise me at all, given the political complexion of your county, that they fall into the category that you mentioned. But I do want to mention one thing, and that is the precipitating event for the intelligent design curriculum in Dover was that a group of fundamentalist Christians had taken over the school board. You know, most communities, nobody pays attention to a school board election. So all you have to do is get like-minded people out, stand for office. You got a shot at getting right. elected. Yeah. They're the ones who push the intelligent design curriculum. Now, here's what's interesting. The trial began at the end of September 2005, and it lasted through the end of October and into the first few days in November. That was also the time that the entire school board was up for re-election. What happened parallel to the trial is that a slate of eight people ran for the nine positions on the board. They called, they banded together, they called themselves Dover Cares, and they specifically uh, promised to do away with this nonsensical anti-science curriculum. That was their platform. Well, I don't know how it would have ha how that 
group would have fared the year before. But in, in light of everything that came out in the trial itself, which was public and very closely followed in the community of Dover, the citizens of Dover went to the polls at the end of the trial and they voted the whole school board out and they voted the entire Dover Care slate in. So people can be convinced by the evidence. And I think Dover is a good example of that. Yeah, we're also very good at acknowledging a mistake when it comes to our right to vote. I think you see this in the current uh, presidential circumstance where you had a lot of young people who decided not to go out to vote during the 2016 presidential elections because they figured there's no way that Donald Trump is going to win the presidency. That's just not possible. And they probably didn't like Hillary Clinton that much anyway. I'm in that boat, yeah. I'm in that boat as well. And so, uh, you know, in the most recent midterm elections, you see higher voter turnout than ever. You know, and maybe ever isn't a good, maybe ever isn't a good descriptor. It, no, but no, it was ho- almost higher, higher voter turnout than ever for a midterm. Yes. Not for presidential. But the other thing is you live in Pennsylvania, I gather. I live in New York now, but oh, uh, I, see. I grew okay, up in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look, if you look at the new congressional map in the state of Pennsylvania, it reflects that reaction uh, in terms of all the new seats that went to the Democratic side of the aisle. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. Uh, we we do sort of sometimes forget the power we have in this democracy as people. We forget we we get caught up in the fact that it's one vote out of you know 110 million. Yeah, and no kidding. It takes something like what happened in Dover to realize. Wait a minute, maybe I should get out and vote, even in something as small as a school board. Yeah, what I what I try to explain to my college students is I want to ask you, sell you guys a question. Why is it that we actually do have uh, universal uh, health care in this country? And they say, what? No, we don't. And I say, yes, we do. If you're 65 or over. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is called Medicare. And why do we have Medicare? Um, well, the answer is the group with the highest percentage turnout on election day everywhere in the country, red, purple, blue, everything else between are retired people. Uh, retired people, of course, they don't have to worry about jobs and schools and stuff like that. But the fact of the matter is, and I'm I'm in that age category now too, um, us old folks, we get out and we vote our interest at the ballot box and you know what it has an effect. And if young people did exactly the same thing, it would have an effect as well. Exactly. So, yeah. So, I so in any event, let me get back to the question that I dodged, which is why did I write this book? Um, I, I, I wrote this book in part because I think the easy answer to why people resist accepting evolution, its meaning, its consequences, and so forth, the easy answer is, ah, the people who reject it are all religious fundamentalists, and therefore it contradicts a literal reading of the Bible, and that's that. But it turns out that actually, um, when Americans are polled, the number who fall into the category, the percentage who fall into the category of being biblical literalists, meaning Genesis has to be literally true. It's Mm -hmm. only about 14 or 15 percent. But the percentage that reject evolution is at least three times that much. It's between 40 and 45 percent. So what's going on here? Well, one of the things that's become apparent to me is that one of the things that repels many people is what some of the leading advocates for evolution say that evolution means. So, for example, you can pick up uh, very well-written popular books by the likes of of Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, Henry Gee, 
uh, and a whole variety of others, and they'll tell you a number of things. One of them that you see repeated throughout these is, first of all, that we don't have free will, um, that our thoughts, our decisions are not really thoughts or decisions at all. They're just chemical processes in the brain, and they're dictated by external forces over which we have no control. And that presumably is something that evolution tells us because evolution tells us that our origins are in a material process and therefore our individuality is really just an illusion. And another example of this is people who tell us, oh, wait a minute now, this idea of human exceptionalism, that we are you know, the extraordinary creature on this planet, that's kind of egotism. It's misplaced. We're just another critter among every other critter. There's no reason to consider ourselves special. Every characteristic we think is unique to us, tool making, uh, communication, uh, reverence for the dead, all these other sorts of things. You can find moral values, you can find examples of these in other animals too. So our existence here is not that big a deal. And then a final example um, of all of this um, basically is the notion that moral values are an illusion. The reason that all of us, and I think all of us, have an innate sense of what's right and what's wrong is not because there's such a thing as authentic good or evil. It's simply a set of arbitrary rules that evolution forced upon us during our evolution as a species. And the reason we think that murder, rape, theft, things like that, uh, physical abuse are wrong is not because they're really wrong, but simply having the sense that these things are forbidden enabled us to cohere as a social species and made early groups of humans better able to do the things that made our species succeed, such as uh, gather food, make babies, and make war on neighboring groups. Would All you, of those things are characteristic of civilization. Would so you the, say that society, the, the fact that we have sort of evolved moral guidelines, if you will, Sure. Would you say that society, because we evolved moral guidelines to sort of cohere and and um, meet up in, in these large societies and actually be able to live next door to one another, right. would you say that society is in itself an evolution of the human species? Okay, so 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 let me go back. So, so you asked me whether or not um, society itself is a reflection of our evolutionary heritage. Um and, 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 and I think the answer to that is yes. Um, I certainly accept the idea that uh, evolutionary pressures and constraints help to shape our moral values for a variety of reasons. What I don't accept is that necessarily means that those moral values are inauthentic or that they're only simply there because they helped us to reproduce and survive. Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, one of the things that evolution produced in all of us was a brain that was capable of doing things like uh, constructing algebra, calculus, Ramanian geometry, and so forth. Um, so in other words, the human mind constructed mathematics. Now, there's an actual argument among mathematicians as to whether mathematics is something we construct or something we discover that's you know really out there in the world and it's just waiting for us to discover. Yeah, and I, I would I, I would often get... when I hear these arguments like I don't I personally don't understand the distinction. I don't understand well, the difference. 
I, well, there's there's a uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, but uh, there's a book with a title along the lines of something like the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, meaning why is it that the mathematics that we humans construct is so good at describing the natural world? I mean, remember your high school physics class mm -hmm. um, and the way in which we can precisely calculate the orbits of planets, the trajectory of a cannonball. Um, the uh, the acceleration due to gravity and all of these wonderful things. If mathematics is a human construct, why should it fit the natural world so well? As I say, that's a question I don't want to get into right now because I'm I'm a biologist, not a mathematician. I'm, a, I'm an astrophysicist, and and I see those, and I'm like, mm, I just don't like. I, it just I struggle to to really get the distinction that is being. All, I struggle to get a lot of the distinctions that we like this free will versus not free will like, yeah, okay. type of thing. I yeah. Well, I hope we can. I hope weird. we can. I hope we can talk about the free will thing. Yeah, but, let's do it. But 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 in terms of uh, uh, in terms of mathematics, here's my point. Um, yes, evolution produced the moral sense in us. I agree with that. But evolution also produced a brain that was capable of constructing systems of mathematics that no other organism is capable of, of constructing. Now, here's the question. Evolution gave us that mathematical ability. Does that mean mathematics is, is flawed, that it's just an illusion, that it's just sort of a survival skill? Well, I don't think so. Um, so I don't think mathematical systems are invalidated because it was evolution that gave us the ability to construct them any more than I think moral systems are invalidated because evolution produced in us the moral sense. In other words, I really do think there are things that are authentically right and authentically wrong. And to me, the interesting thing, and I pointed this out in my book, is many of the people who say that moral values are arbitrary and they're just the artifacts of evolution so they have no real standing, they themselves place a very high moral value on what they consider to be the truth of science. They behave as though opposing science is destructive, inhumane, and evil. They very often have profound moral values, which they don't always recognize as moral values. Um, and if evolution, if moral values are really an illusion, then fighting for the truth of science uh, is meaningless as well. Well, I don't think it is. I think moral values properly considered are authentic. And I think very often what they're reacting to are what they consider to be arbitrary, religiously imposed moral values. But I think there's a, a moral sense in all of us which is much deeper than arbitrary rules that religion sometimes impose. Um, and, you know, having, having been brought up also as a Catholic, what would I say were moral values that are arbitrary? Well, don't eat meat on Friday. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, make sure you go to Mass at certain times of the year. Uh, make sure that you abstain during the season of Lent and so forth and so on. Those are customs, not really moral values. Um, yeah, I, I have yeah. a, a question, and this is in regards to something that's sort of in the news these past maybe week. When we talk about humans sort of evolving moral values and them being authentic, authentic to us, what do you? How do you approach something like the circumstance on on North Sentinel Island? Are you familiar with that? Help me out. No. Uh, North Sentinel Island is this this island. Which was oh, in the excuse news me. Excuse me. This is off the coast of India. Yes, with the and indigenous this is, people. This is where that that would be Christian missionary was murdered. Yes, yeah, so these yes. people. For the listeners who don't know, this it's one of the few uncontacted tribes that have not come in contact with modern day society. 
They have not been given any technology. They are living a very primitive life on an island that is completely sheltered away from any human contact. And there's rarely photographed. They're, they're rarely uh, sort of communicated with. I think it's only been like two times that people have actually tried to go there and talk to these people. And many of the times they just get shot at with arrows until, until they're like, all right, we, we better get out of here. Now there might be more uncontacted tribes if you go far sure. into the Amazon, if you, if you really seek them out. But this is one that we know to exist. And recently we had someone, uh, a Christian missionary go there and, and try to s- spread the word of God. And, um, it didn't work out well for him. We'll say that it did not, it did not end in his favor. I, he got shot, he got killed. And then, you know, people tried to recover his body for good reasons. The reason that they wanted to recover his body was number one, to, to give his family some, some sense of peace. But the second is that these people might not have the immunity built up that, that we do, you know, exactly. if, you, if you took one of those indigenous people and you put them in Rochester, New York, where I live right now, they would be dead within the week because their immune system simply can't handle the diseases that we carry around with us. And so I ask you, why do these people sort of not have this innate moral morality to them? Why are they willing to 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 kill so easily? I, I, I'm I'm I resist your assertion that they don't have an innate moral value. Okay. Um, when, when I say there's a universal sense that, that murder is wrong, that killing is wrong. Exactly. But um, if you look at any so-called civilized society, um, all of them make some sort of a provision for defending the group against outsiders, even to the point of war and murder. Um, and, and we are certainly, uh, you know, don't forget um, the president of the United States um, gave our military the authority to use lethal force um, mm-hmm. along the border. Um, and in fact, he would certainly say that he's a moral person and he doesn't want to kill anybody, but... He would also say he's skinny. <laughs> <laughs> we know that's not true. But... Yeah, that's not, that's, that's not true either. But um, my, my point is, among the values that have held human societies together, unfortunately... Um, is a suspicion and resentment and hostility towards outsiders from the group. Um, and I think that's pretty much universal. We see it manifest in our societies, for example, as racism, uh, group identity politics, and so forth. Um, but this hostility to outside groups is, is actually quite common. So I don't think, you know, it, we know almost nothing uh, about the, the people who live on this isolated island. Um, my own personal view is that a humane understanding of the rights of indigenous people suggests that if they want to be left alone, we should leave them alone. I agree. Um, I agree 100%. Yeah. I th- yeah. Um, but, but I certainly would not say that they lack moral values. I think that if you were able to drop yourself on that island and be invisible, which is probably the only way to survive, you would discover that they have a culture, that they have values. Um, that their group identity is important to them and that they've been able to produce a value that says we must repel outsiders because they are a threat to us. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I was playing a little bit of devil's advocate there. I sure. agree that that these people have certainly have moral values to protect the tribe. Um, and those moral values maybe don't overlap with the moral values – in other words, well, Donald Trump complicates my argument because he's just willing to shoot everyone. 
I'm like, God, I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make, uh, you know, humans seem seem good here, and then Donald Trump's out there killing every immigrant he sees, and and of course that's an, an overstatement, but yeah, there's certainly a, a moral, a moral exist, a moral value that exists that sort of protects us from our our own our dangers, you know, whether that be a lion, whether that be a tiger, whether that be a human running at us with, with a Bible, you know, and if you don't know what the Bible is, and if you don't know what that human's doing, then, then certainly maybe the, the route to take is to, to shoot them so they don't murder your family. Um, because frankly, if you're an indigenous tribe and you see a white man, your instinct across the history of culture might be to, uh, to shoot them dead before they shoot you dead. So it's, and of course they don't know American history, but but that is certainly ingrained in us that that we we want to defend our borders, whatever those arbitrary borders are, whether it be a line in the sand or whether it be where the land meets the water. There is a there is a sense that we should defend that as a as a culture. Yeah, and and you will find that not just in America, not just in Western culture. You'll find that pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, sort of a, a sense that outsiders could be a threat. Yeah. So you are you mentioned this. You you're a Roman Catholic now. Do you find that people within your faith, maybe when you when you go when you go to uh, to church, when you are at the church, do you find that people within your faith are these fundamental creationists, and do you find that they have a little angst towards what you do and who you are because of it? The answer is no, and sometimes yes. In in order, the two questions. Now, here's what I mean by no, um, and that is the the Catholic Church, as you know, is headed up by a pope. Mm-hmm. And four popes, and I'll name them, Pius Twelfth, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and the current Pope Francis, four popes have spoken or written in support of the scientific integrity of evolution. Um, the very first of those was in an encyclical written by Pius XII um, in 1947, which is the year before I was born. So this is actually a traditional position within the church. If you go to the great... Catholic universities in this country, um, for example, Notre Dame, uh, Loyola University, the College of the Holy Cross, Boston College, you will discover that they have researchers in their biology department studying evolution. Mm-hmm. If you go to the, the beautiful brand new Hall of Life Sciences at Notre Dame, I was there a couple of years ago, beautiful building, great research facility, inlaid in the floor of the main hallway as you walk in is a very famous quote by a population geneticist named Dobzhansky. And the quote is, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And again, that's the official position within the church. It is certainly held by church intellectuals. And I have to tell you that my own advocacy for evolution has actually won me an embarrassingly large number of awards from Catholic universities. So, for example, Notre Dame has – this is the reason I was there and I saw that, that, that slogan. Notre Dame has a very prestigious award that they give out once a year to one person called the Leitare Medal. And four years ago, they gave that to me. And it was precisely my advocacy for evolution that they were honoring. Villanova University, also a Catholic university, has a medal that they give out once a year called the Gregor Mendel Medal. Mm-hmm. They give it out to a scientist who advocates for the compatibility of science with faith, and I, I've received that as well. Um, now, um, that's one thing. There are an awful lot of lay people within the church who do see, and I know this from my own parish, who do see 
evolution as part of what they would regard as a secular humanist assault against faith itself. Now, I think those people are profoundly misguided. That's one of the reasons I've written a book about uh, uh, evolution and faith called Finding Darwin's God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, they certainly exist within the church. But um, and I, you know, people question me about my own Catholicism. Uh, my answer is that it's still true. There's an awful lot of things that bother me about the church. Okay, but its attitude towards evolution is not one of them. Do you think there's just a general st- a stigma or a belief that pervades society that it's it's religion versus science? There's not religion and science. Oh yes, no, that's really, really common. The, the The religion versus science stereotype is literally everywhere. And in fact, if you know, you go on talk shows as I've done many times. They love the old point counterpoint argument. Um, uh, Newsweek had a, a cover story uh, a number of years ago where they had a print debate between the Oxford evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins and the evangelical Christian who is the director of the National Institutes of Health, and that's Dr. Francis Collins. Now, when I introduce him as an evangelical Christian, that's correct. Um, People always get the wrong impression. Dr. Collins is a terrific scientist, and he's been a great leader for the NIH, which to me as a biologist is the most important scientific institution in our country. Um, But Collins is a foursquare advocate for evolution. There's no question about that. But Newsweek loved to play it up. Here's two scientists, and they're engaging in this science versus religion debate. Um, I think it's a false dichotomy for a lot of reasons. Um, I've done my best to speak out against that. Uh, And I think, unfortunately, uh, science in many cases suffers from the – not just the – suffers from the hostility that many of my scientific colleagues show towards people of faith. Now, I'm not asking for all scientists to become religious. Scientists – as a group, are much less religious than the American people in general. And I certainly understand that. But the scientific community should also realize that they gain an awful lot of support uh, from uh, members of the scientific community who are themselves religious and try to bl- and who try to blunt that reflexive hostility towards science that you see among many religious people. Yeah, we just live in a society where we want everything to be a boxing match. We want there to be one opponent versus the other. We want it to be red versus blue. We want it to be the Browns versus the Saints. We want it to be religion versus science. Yeah. It's what – and I don't even know if I should say it's what we want. I should say it's what sells. It's what it, it is what sells. And there's all sorts of stereotypes. So, you know, for example, what would you think of, what would you think of a person um, who was uh, uh, an athlete in high school and college, is a sports official today, loves country music, and drives a pickup truck? You know, the, the, predict, predict their political affinity. Anyway, that describes me. Yeah. Um, being all of those things. And, you know, the stereotype would be some sort of a, a redneck with a gun rack in the back of the pickup truck. Well, I don't have a gun rack. Um, but on the other hand, I have no objections to the Second Amendment or for people for hunting. My wife grew up in an area of northwestern Pennsylvania where deer hunting was pr- practically the second varsity sport in high school. Yeah, um, I, I, I have no I have no issue with it either or i agree i sit right on the i'm i'm perfectly fine with the second amendment i if anything i feel like college has actually made me more more conservative if you will lean more towards the the right and uh i think part of that is because of what i see 
in a lot of left-leaning people is that sort of red versus blue mentality. And I don't like that. I, I, I want every issue to be a boxing match. I don't want the political system itself to be a boxing match. I yeah, want no, to- I, think, I, I, think that's, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, it, it. Do we have some time to talk about free will? Yes, we have all yeah, the time in the okay. world. Okay, so well, one of the chapters in my book is called I, Robot. Okay. Um, after the Isaac as the wonderful Isaac Asimov uh, novel of the same of the same name, um, and and in it I, I I try to address the question of free will, and uh, among the people who say that we don't have free will, yeah. so in 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 that chapter on free will, mm-hmm. uh, I quoted the very well known atheist writer Sam Harris, uh, who's written a number of books like Letter to a Christian Nation, that sort of stuff, um, and he's recently written a book called Free Will. Um, arguing that ultimately we are being steered by forces within us. Um, we don't make the decisions that we think we make. We don't really have authentic thoughts. All of those are being steered from outside. And uh, he's a good writer. He's a terrific writer. And he makes this case very, very eloquently. And an awful lot of other evolutionary biologists make the same case. Now, one of the anecdotes that I wrote about is a number of years ago, um, I was asked to be a speaker in a, a nice, wonderful little conference at the New York Academy of Sciences in New York City um, on the work of uh, the writings of C.P. Snow. Now, your audience might not know the name C.P. Snow, but C.P. Snow was a British writer who was trained as a scientist and also also became a novelist. So he's a very good writer. He understood science. And he gave a very influential lecture. Uh, which became a, 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 a little book called The Two Cultures. And in The Two Cultures, Snow argued that increasingly, and he wrote this in the 1950s, that increasingly society was being, academics were being broken down into two cultures. One of them is the scientifically literate culture, people in what we would now call the STEM fields. And the other one is the humanistic, artistic, and, and social culture. And he said the problem is although people in the scientific culture understand humanism, the other other way around is not there. So you have people in the arts and in the social sciences who really don't understand the natural sciences, and that's a serious cultural problem. So at any event, that's what the conference was about. And one of the people who was there uh, on the platform, not the same time as I was, was the great Harvard evolutionary biologist E.O. Wilson. Um, Ed, Ed Wilson is actually a friend of mine from the time I spent at Harvard as a junior faculty member. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. There is no Nobel Prize for evolution, but if there is one, Ed would have won at least two. I mean, his work is that important. Mm-hmm. That's, so, that's odd. Why is that? To go well, on a tangent. It, it's because of the will of Frederick Nobel. Um, he set out a number of prizes in the Nobel Endowment, and I'm pretty sure that the ones that he set out were for physics and chemistry medicine or physiology, mm-hmm. uh, the Nobel Prize for Peace came along a little bit later, the endowment grew, and the stewards of the endowment decided they'd throw one in for economics. Don't we sort of lump biology in with physiology, though? Yeah, I, I regard the, the prize is called the Prize for Medicine or Physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I'm concerned, that's the Nobel Prize for Biology. Yeah. But, 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 but at least the Nobel Committee has never felt that work in evolutionary biology falls in that category. However, I'd have to tell you this. Um, I believe it was the chemistry prize this year 
was given to a group of scientists who were using what were called genetic algorithms to basically evolve in a test tube uh, proteins and drugs with certain beneficial properties. So they were actually harnessing the power of natural selection mm -hmm. in order to carry this out. Now they're doing it in a test tube. So it ended up being the chemistry prize, but you could say that evolution manages to sneak in there, but not the kind of work that Ed does. But in any event, in his talk, Ed spent, oh, 15 or 20 minutes talking about our lack of free will, the way in which the evolution of our species during the Pleistocene period shaped our desires and values and aesthetic taste today. Um, we're being driven by all of these factors, we have no control over them. So he made the, what I would regard as the standard argument against free will. Then, in the question and answer period, he was asked, what do you consider to be the greatest threat to our planet today? And Ed's answer, and if you know his writings, you could have predicted he would have said this, was the loss of biodiversity. The fact that we are cutting down forests, we're losing species whose value we do not know, um, and we're restricting the kinds of plants and animals that can live on this planet more and more, and that's a tremendous threat to the planet. And he urged everyone in the audience to take up the cause of conservation, take up the cause of biodiversity, fight against excessive development, do things necessary to control the unchecked expansion of the human population around the world, all this good stuff. Now, I endorsed that, as I think any biologist would, but the juxtaposition of him saying, on one hand, we don't have free will, we don't make our own decisions. And then when he was asked, what do you think is the most important? He then was urging his audience to use the free will, which they do not have, to advocate to convince other people who don't have free will either, that this is the preferred course of action. Yeah, and I was struck by the incredible contradiction of saying we don't have free will, but by the way, make the decision to act in this way because it will be good for the planet. This is the distinction that, that goes over my head. When someone like maybe Sam Harris, I'm not completely familiar with all of his arguments, but if he is to say we don't have free will because maybe we couldn't choose the sort of environment that we live in, right? So I was born to a, a, in a single mother household. I didn't choose that. In that regard, I didn't have free will. But what, what, I, what I get lost on is the idea that I don't have free will after that. I could, have become, I could have become a football player if I wanted to. I could have become a biologist if I wanted to. I, could, I did become a physicist because I wanted to. There are these idea that somehow your free will – your free will is certainly, certainly – held back by the circumstance that you're born into but that's that's as far as it goes in my yes, I, in my mind yeah no i agree with you now i know you're not doing video but the, all the listeners should know that right now i'm pointing to my head in other words i'm pointing to my brain mm -hmm. and i absolutely believe as a scientist that there is nothing that happens up here in my head that is not explicable in terms of the laws of physics and chemistry and the cell biology of neural connections in the brain. In other words, um, I don't believe in a, a, mystical, uh, a mystical soul that sort of orders around the matter of the brain. We are material creatures. There's just no question. This is, you know, this is one of the things that Madonna got absolutely right. We live in a material world, mm -hmm. and we are material creatures within that. Now, here's the thing. When you read Harris closely, and I'm going on his book in Free Will, what he's really against 
is not the concept of free will, but what he's really against is the idea that there is this mystical soul that pushes around matter, that makes decisions for us that are not explicable uh, in physical terms, as I just sort of outlined. So what he's really trying to do is to argue because, again, he thinks religion is like the worst thing that's ever happened to our species. He's trying to argue against the underpinnings, or what he thinks is the underpinning, of an awful lot of religious belief, which is the idea in a mystical, non-material soul that cannot be probed by science. Now, the interesting thing to me about free will is that, and, and I try to emphasize this point to people who are not trained in neuroscience, Everybody knows that the brain is complicated, but not everybody realizes exactly how complicated it is mm -hmm. and how quickly the wiring of the brain can change itself. The wiring of the brain can be changed literally by thinking about it. In other words, the thoughts that you have right now can literally and do literally physically change synaptic connections within the brain, the action potentials required for activation, and so forth. This is what happens when you learn something. And all of us are learning things all the time, whether we realize it or not. So the dynamism for the brain is extraordinary. And to me, it's an incredible act of scientific overstatement to say that we know enough about the brain to say that there cannot be and a decision-making process built into the cell biology of the brain that enables us to do what I think you and I would agree is free will, which is to intelligently look at several alternatives, think about the consequences of each of them, and pick one of them as what we would like to do. Um, and to me, that's the definition of free will that works. Now, um, 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 I, I want to read you, if I can, um, from my book, because I want to read you, and I don't want to make any mistakes about it, a passage by Stephen Hawking. Yes, please. Um, and, and Hawking, of course, was not a religious person, even though he has that, that wonderful quote about the, uh, the mind of God. Um, and, and, but Hawking's was troubled with the idea that free will wouldn't exist. Um, and, and here's what he wrote. Um, let's see. The ideas about science assume that we humans are rational beings who are free to observe the universe as we want and to draw logical deductions from what we see. In such a scheme, it is reasonable to suppose that we might progress ever closer towards the laws that govern the universe. And as a scientist, that's certainly what I believe. Now, then he says, yet, if there really is a complete unified theory something that would explain everything. It would presumably also determine our actions. And so the theory itself would determine the outcome of our search for that theory. And why should it determine that we come to the right conclusions from the evidence? Might it not equally well determine that we draw the wrong conclusion or no conclusion at all? In other words, the whole idea of science is predicated on the notion that we can look at the evidence in the world and draw testable conclusions from it. And if we don't have the free will to do that, then science itself is threatened. And that's to me, is the underpinning of arguing for the validity of free will. It's not to save free will for religious doctrine. 
It's to save science from the notion that science itself is determined um, in, in a way that undercuts its own validity. Yeah, I also don't understand how you can construct an argument saying that free will doesn't exist without being able to look into the future. If you could, feasibly, if we look into the past right now, if we somehow had a video, well, we do have a lot of video of the past now, but if we had a video of, of all of all of the history of the universe and we were able to go forward and backward in that video, we would be able to say that the creatures in that video had no free will. And the reason we'd be able to say that is because we can see what they do next and we can see what they did before. We can see that every choice they ever made was somehow determined by how far along in the video you are. But we can't see into the future. We can only look into the past. And because we can't see into the future, I don't understand how any argument for for the lack for saying that free will doesn't exist. I don't understand how an argument like that could even be propagated. I don't yeah, get it. No, I and and there is um, the late Stephen Jay Gould, who, for my money, was the best and most incisive writer about evolution ever. Um, if any of your listeners want to learn something about modern conceptions of evolution, pick up any book by Stephen Jay Gould. Uh, not only is he provocative scientifically, he was a brilliant writer. His prose is just a delight to read. And I, I really mean that. One of the most influential books that Steve ever wrote was called Wonderful Life. And it was about contingency in evolution. And I won't go into all the arguments, but, uh, but I want to give a very quick summary. Imagine life as a videotape of the sort that you were talking about, where you can go mm -hmm. back in the past. So wind that tape back about 500 million years ago to a period of time called the Cambrian. And we have in the Cambrian the beginnings of almost all of today's major groups of animals, the animal phylum, including our own phylum. And by our own phylum, I don't mean mammals. I don't even mean vertebrates. There's none of those in the Cambrian, but I mean chordates, animals with a little notochord or the precursor of a backbone. So wind it back to the Cambrian and let the videotape run again for another mm -hmm. 500 million years. Would it play out in exactly the same way that it did? And Gould's answer for a whole variety of scientifically supportable reasons was no, absolutely not. We couldn't be sure. In fact, we can be quite sure we couldn't be sure that we'd get the world we have. In fact, he thinks we'd be quite sure that we'd end up the history of life would be entirely different. And I think that's true. Now, that's not directly related to free will, but it does tell us something. And that is the future is not directly predictable from the past. And um, I find that kind of exciting and empowering because it means that the future is open and it's really up to us to determine. It's not written in stone. Yeah, sometimes I think there's a confusion, a little bit of a confusion about the difference between science being able to predict a system and not predict a system. In your case, in the case of, of evolution, um, you might not reproduce the exact same thing every time, okay? But say you have a supernova, okay? A, a type one, let's say a type 1a supernova, which happens when matter gets stripped off of a large star onto a white dwarf and the white dwarf explodes because it, it goes over its so-called mass limit, okay? And we, we analyze these things across the universe and they explode in the exact same way every time. In that regard, you could say it's predictable. But here's the question. If you were to go back to the beginning of the universe, allow the universe to evolve in the same way, 
Would you still get the same distribution of white dwarfs across the same areas of the sky? Could we record them all in the exact same way at the exact same time? I think the answer to that, just like you said, is no. I think there's a whole field of science called nonlinear science. It's the idea that the things that have happened before are not necessarily the things that will happen in the future. Look at uh, turbulence, right? Turbulence is a big one. Have you ever heard of the, the butterfly effect? Of course. Yeah, so the butterfly effect is, a, is, a, is, is this interesting idea of if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, can the currents that it produces on such small scales lead to large-scale turbulence in the atmosphere and cause maybe a large hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean? Is that possible? Maybe. Maybe it is possible. But the, the, the answer to the question is we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because we don't have the tools as human beings to probe a system as nonlinear as turbulence in the atmosphere. And I would and I would extend that to being able to probe the human mind, the brain, in terms of the activities of a single neuron. Now, I'm sure many of your listeners have seen these really marvelous uh, imaging systems um, in which uh, someone has shown uh, a picture of some delicious food or a, a very attractive man or a very attractive woman. Um, and they show then the part of the brain that kind of lights up with activity. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, th th those images uh, uh, are called functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. They're really cool. They're really nifty. Um, we often in the popular press misinterpret those to say, ah, look, that's brain activity right there. Uh, what it really is, is increased blood flow because what fMRI picks up is an increased amount of the hemoglobin molecule in certain areas. Mm -hmm. It uh, Every hemoglobin has a little ring inside it that is, in effect, a little micromagnet. So the more hemoglobin that's there, the stronger a signal you get in this magnetic resonance imaging. So it's a really cool tool. But at the very best resolution we can do today, a single pixel on the image lighting up represents anywhere from 1,000 to 5,000 brain cells. So there's an enormous amount of complexity that is being hidden in here. Um, we can do, in some cases, do single cell recordings and find out some really, really interesting things. But you're talking about a, a, a structure, the human brain, that has in the neighborhood of 70 billion nerve cells. And every one of those nerve cells, depending upon the type, may have as many as 100,000 connections to other cells. So, And as I mentioned before, they're highly dynamic. So what you're talking about is a system that is never the same from one millisecond to another. There's a wonderful uh, Buddhist proverb that says you can never step into the same river twice. And what that means basically is your act of stepping into it changes the river. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the second time, it's not the same river. Well, your brain is never the same twice. Because the very act of having a thought or perception physically changes the brain. Um, and that's one of the reasons why unpredictability is certainly part of the system. So in that regard, I would say that, that you know, don't get confused by free will indicating that we can determine everything. Um, we, we certainly have free will and we cannot determine everything. Not everything is determinable. When people come up with these free will arguments, I think a lot of times what they're indicating is that with enough probing of the universe, 
we could get to a, a state where we could start to like predict the future in some way. Say, okay, yeah. I know if you make this decision now, your the the neuron movements in your brain and the chemistry that you've been that has been imposed upon you will requ- cause you in five years to make this decision. We we won't get there, and nor can we ever even get the ability to get there. Yeah, it's no, not- it, it, no, no. I think you're right, and in terms of you know the quantum field fluctuations of subatomic particles and so forth, that tells you uh, mm-hmm. that even in principle. There are physical events that you can only predict statistically in the broad way, but you certainly cannot predict on an individual basis. Exactly. Our universe, our very universe may have been born from a a mere fluctuation in some underlying quantum foam that we we don't even – you can't even begin to understand the properties of. What I think is actually really fascinating about the universe at large is that in essence, it's actually really simple. It's a it's a bubble, if you will, of zero energy. It's a zero energy bubble. If you could somehow collide all of the particles in the universe with all of the antiparticles in the universe and squeeze that down to it on the subatomic quantum scale, you might very well get nothing. You will get nothing. The universe came from nothing, and it very well may return to nothing. And that's the thing that attracts me to astrophysics so much, is the idea that... Um, I, I'm not a I'm not a religious person. When I was a teenager, I was a, a loser. I was a criminal. I was a, a just a product of my environment more than I would have liked to admit. And I was a devout atheist, if you will. I was like I thought people who believed in God, people who believed in religion, were stupid and naive, and and they didn't know what was going on. One thing that sticks with me, and I, I dwell on this all the time. And thank thankfully, I have an amazing mother who's forgiven me. But one time, I remember telling her she was stupid. Because she believed in Jesus. I remember telling her that. And man, does that stick with me. And I'm like, ah, oh, how could I be so foolish to say that as a 14-year-old kid? I was so dumb. And uh, and I dwell on that a lot now. But as I get older, as I got older, and I stopped being a loser, and I started being successful, and I started trying to improve my life in many ways and improve the lives of the people around me, I switched from being an atheist into more of an agnostic person. And now... I don't even know if I'd say agnostic. I'd say like something's, something's – I believe in some something. There has to be something. The reason I well, say there has to be something is because if the universe was born from nothing, there had to be something that, that started that birth, if you will. There, well, you've come, all the, you've come all the way back to Plato uh, and Aristotle in the first cause argument, um, which is uh, where do you get an uncaused cause from? Um, so this is philosophy that goes back to the Greeks. I have to interject, though. Um, the The job description of mothers is to forgive. Uh, and it certainly sounds like you've been blessed with a wonderful one. So I'm, oh, She's I'm great. Cert- yeah, she's yeah, so listening I'm, so I'm, right cert- now, I, I imagine. She listens to uh, – she just sits there for hours and listens and then re-listens to the show and uh, – yeah, she, but but I have to tell you, look, you know, even though I was I was uh, I was brought up Catholic, um, the uh, you should know something, and that is uh, my dad, who was also brought up Catholic, um, spent uh, right out of high school. He went into the seminary to study to be a priest, mm-hmm. and he spent two years at Saint Minard's Seminary in Southern Indiana. Indiana is where he's from, and uh, before he decided that this was not for him, I don't know. Maybe he liked girls too much, but it just wasn't working out. Um, my dad, my dad's in that boat too. He loves, so, he, he likes women. So he uh, quit the seminary, 
Uh, and then the Japanese decided what he would do for the next four years because he quit the week before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And it was obvious that he was going into the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, then at the end of the war, near the end of the war, he met a 17 year old high school girl in New Jersey. That would be my mom. That's uh, why I grew up in New Jersey. Um, and that was pretty much that. Now, one of the things, uh, my, my dad was religious, but very clear eyed about his religion. And one of the things that he decided was that his boys, I I have a brother, his boys were not going to go to parochial school. He said he grew up with an idea that the only good people in the world were Catholics. When he got into the army, he realized, oh man, was that wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he wanted his kids to go to public school. And I thank him every day for that. Uh, when I went to college, I went through a period uh, very much akin to what you just said, where I decided, ah, religion, you know, religion's just for stupid, stupid people, weak people, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, you know, I just walked away from the church, and also it allowed me to sleep in on Sunday mornings, um, you know, all that, all that good stuff. Um, and what brought me back gradually, I have to say, was the culture of the church. And and I, I you know, I want to talk about uh, uh, science in my book, but one of the things that did bring me back was a book called The Seven-Story Mountain, which was written by Thomas Merton, who is also a, quite an accomplished poet, um, and also, as it turns out, a, a, a priest, a Trappist monk. Um, and here was a guy, and I read this book, and I read Merton's poetry and was just taken by it. Here was a guy who had this incredible command over language. Boy, could he write poetry. It's just extraordinary. And yet he joined a religious order, the Trappists, who take a vow of silence. And I thought, y- you're so good with words like this, and yet you go to an order where you do not speak? This is amazing. Mm-hmm. And the more I read into his life, I realized, here's a really intelligent and gifted and brilliant person. And somehow he's found hope and peace in God. And that sort of brought me back one way or another. Now, you know, I still have lots of doubts. Um, Anybody does. I'm a scientist and therefore I'm skeptical by nature. And that means I'm also skeptical of religious claims as well. Uh, But I'm also completely skeptical of the idea that the, the very existence of nature doesn't require an explanation. And that's right there where you said, you know, where does this universe come from? Does it come out of nothing? Um, And the answer is there has to be some reason for it to come out of nothing. Uh, And that's what I mean about being skeptical of claims that nature does not require an explanation of its own. Um, Yeah, Yeah, so so that's it. And along those lines, even if it comes from nothing, this this is sort of my interpretation, even if it comes from nothing, I still think there's something incredibly special by the fact that all of the people, the humans, all of the worlds, the planets, the stars, all of the potential aliens out there, all of that was born out of the exact same little zero energy bubble. It all came from yep. the same place. At one nope. point, all of the energy in the entire world was clustered together in a, in a spot so small that you couldn't possibly imagine how small it could be. And we were all born out of that somehow. And, and so, and I, And I would add something – um, again, for your, for your listeners, um, who is the person who first worked out the physics and mathematics of cosmic expansion? The person uh, who really worked out rigorously uh, the Big Bang? Who is the person? Well, that would be uh, – geez, it's escaping me. It's escaping me. 
Georges Lemaitre. Yes, 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 yes. That's yes, right. And yes. Lemaitre was a professor of physics and mathematics at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Mm-hmm. And when Einstein published his theory of general relativity, uh, Lemaitre was one of the few people in the world who could understand it right away. Mm-hmm. And he went, he confronted Einstein at conferences and he said, look, the basic equations of general relativity imply that the universe has to be expanding. Um, Einstein, for what I would call anti-theological reasons, wanted to believe in a steady state universe, a universe that always was, Mm -hmm. always would be, and therefore did not require an explanation in terms of origins. Um, And he was suspicious of Lemaitre for a very simple reason. Lemaitre was also a priest. And he thought, Einstein thought, I suppose, that Lemaitre was trying to find the moment of creation, Mm -hmm. you know, the in the beginning moment. But as it turns out, of course, Lemaitre was absolutely positively right. Yes. And, well, and, Einstein, and, Einstein, yeah, built, Einstein built that in. Um, I should say I'm not a cosmologist. I'm, I'm a, actually, I work on, I work with general relativity. I work modeling black holes. Einstein built that in, and he built in the fact that the universe was steady state because it was popular at the time. Right. He constructed a theory which was so right and so far above. What anyone else could do at the time. And then at the very end, at the very end, when he's completely done constructing a theory worth five Nobel Prizes, he adds in something that came not from science, but from a belief. From a belief that he had put into him by by society, by the people that he was around. And it turned out to be wrong. And I think he eventually ended up calling that the biggest blunder of his career. Now, it didn't, it it didn't change the answer. It didn't change right. the answer of general relativity. That still stands. But that tweak was not necessary. And that tweak that you're talking about was was a very anti-scientific uh, sort of indication of Einstein that you haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah. Well, the, it, I, I don't know if you've read Walter Isaacson's biography of Einstein. I have. Um, yes. Um, I, I, and, and again, I'd recommend it to all of your listeners. It's wonderful. It is a very good book. And, And I understood as a physics student in college, I studied physics like all biologists have to, Mm -hmm. um, the, um, I understood special relativity immediately. In other words, we covered this in physics class and I got it and I understood equals MC squared and Mm -hmm. what, what happens in an accelerating frame of reference and all this made perfect sense to me. The equations of general relativity, however, when we were presented with them in physics in college, seemed to me to just drop out of thin air. I could not understand the derivations of those equations. And, and that's despite, you know, me pestering my professor and everything else. It's just there they were. I knew they were right, mm-hmm. but I don't understand where they come from. Um, then I read Isaacson's book talking about Einstein having a sense mm-hmm. of what general relativity would require and searching for an equation. In other words, searching yes. for an equation of just the right form mm-hmm. to match his intuition of what was going on in the physical universe. And to me, that was enlightenment, that Einstein also struggled. I have this sense of how things work. How do I put this in mathematical form? And he stumbled across one kind of equation after another until he found the one that today we use to describe general relativity. Yeah, and it, special to relativity. Me it, to me, it really humanized Einstein to an extent that I hadn't appreciated. Mm-hmm. Special relativity is very much the same way. Uh, most of his ideas about special relativity came from his own sort of pondering of what would happen if I could travel alongside a light beam. You know, what, yeah. could, what would happen? What would the universe be like if I could travel alongside a light beam? 
And the you're absolutely right in saying that sort of getting to the the bulk of things in special okay. rel- getting to the bulk of things in special relativity is is quite easy. It's yep. it's not rigorous in that regard, but general relativity is, and it sh- it does show it 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 truly shows his genius, Einstein's genius. He he didn't approach science in the typical here's some data, what sort of system matches the data. Instead, he created his own data. He said, I'm so enlightened that this is what the data should probably look like. Now I'll construct a theory that validates my own data, which I've created in my own skull. It is, it's marvelous. It's marvelous. Yeah. No, it's, it's marvelous. Now, now, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to get onto, to what other subject that is really at the core of my book. Yeah. And, and that is the notion of human exceptionalism, which is that there's something absolutely remarkable about our species. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the last chapter in my book is called Center Stage. And and the reason I, I gave it that title was because I think we're at a critical point in the history of the Earth. Uh, I could go further and say in the history of the universe, but we're at a critical point in the history of the Earth. And one species in particular is at center stage. One species in particular plays an important role in determining what that future would be. And that species is us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I mean by human exceptionalism. So I, 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 um, when I'm writing, uh, most of my writing has been in textbooks and scientific papers, but this book is the third trade book that I've written. A trade book is a book for general audiences that you'd find in a bookstore or an Amazon, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, when I write a book like this, I find that for me, the toughest part of writing any individual chapter is that first page. And what I mean by that is I have to, I have to get in my mind. How am I going to approach this? What's the metaphor or the example or the argument I want to start with? And if I can do that, everything else follows. So uh, during uh, the summer about a year and a half ago, I was struggling with how to start that last chapter, and I had the title Center Stage, but I thought, what can I do? And it was um, um, all of a sudden I just sort of put my uh, laptop aside and thought about the beautiful day that was having this is in august and then i thought oh i have to remember something and that is tonight i have to set the alarm for i think it's about 1 30 in the morning because this is going to be the night of the perseid meteor shower Mm -hmm. and even though i'm a biologist okay i really get off on you know uh, uh, astronomy and cosmic phenomena and Mm -hmm. just to let you know as an example uh, last summer, uh, 2017, a year and a half in advance of that, I made hotel reservations and flight plans so I could go to Jackson Hole, Wyoming to watch the eclipse. I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming to watch Oh, the I'm sorry we didn't run into each other, yeah, man. Yeah, I Yeah, so I was thinking, I knew the path of the eclipse, mm-hmm. and in fact, uh, the pathway goes right past my brother's house in Missouri, Yeah, but I'm thinking... You know, Missouri might be cloudy. They might be having a thunderstorm, and mm-hmm. I don't want to miss this because I've seen partials before, but I had never seen a total. And I thought, where in that path am I almost positive it's going to be a clear day? And I thought, damn, Wyoming. Um, so that's what I was there. But anyway, my two daughters, whom I mentioned before, could tell you that I was the kind of father who, if there was a lunar eclipse, I'd drag them out of bed in the middle of the night to see it, mm-hmm. and innumerable times. I dragged them out to see the Perseid meteor showers. Uh, and I still remember the first time I did it, 
And, uh, you know, I dragged the girls out in the backyard. It was a nice clear night, set down a couple of lawn chairs so we could lie on our backs, sprayed everybody with mosquito repellent, which is necessary mm-hmm. to do with Massachusetts in the summer. And we just lay there. It was about five minutes and nothing was there, maybe a little flicker of a little meteor. And my older daughter, the one who's a, a, a biologist now, goes, Dad, this is boring. Why are... And then in mid-sentence, she goes, oh, my God, as an absolutely spectacular meteor just lit up the night and cut the sky in half. It was just like, wow. Mm-hmm. So both my girls would testify that I drag them out to do this sort of stuff. And they both got to like it a lot. So anyway, I'm trying to figure out... How do I start this chapter? And I remember the Perseids were going to be that night. I thought, that's how I start the chapter. So what I said was, um, I'm not reading from the book directly. This is what I read. I said, I'm hoping for a clear sky tonight. Because tonight is the night of the Perseid meteor shower. And in the middle of the night, I will sit back along with tens of thousands of other people around the world. Mm-hmm. who know that the Perseids are coming and I will enjoy this and you know I will think about you know uh, orient myself um, by Polaris um, and also by I'm um, trying to remember what the other star is uh, that uh, the Perseids and I said you know the the uh, the light from one of them this could be from Sirius mm-hmm. is only it, it is only eight years uh, uh, eight years getting here yeah. Polaris is much farther away although it's still close enough that we can see it um, and, and this is extraordinary. And then I thought, this is again what I wrote, um, of all the creatures on this planet, of all the marvelous forms of life that grace planet Earth, only one knows that the Perseids are coming. Only one is planning, small minority of people, but a lot of people nonetheless, uh, only one is planning to lie back in the darkness and only one delights um, in seeing this and only one basically looks to solve the mysteries in the stars that is the human species that is what makes us exceptional and I, I went on to talk about some other writers biologists who have argued that we're not exceptional mm-hmm. uh, because of course we are animals and that's absolutely true we are perfectly good animals just like every other animal we have very close relatives uh, in the other great apes. We are one of the great apes, along with gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans. We are just one of those five species. That's absolutely true. Um, and other authors have made this point quite eloquently. But here's the thing. Only one of those five species is writing books about the other four. Only one of those basically, is seeking answers to the questions in the stars. And I said, yes, we're made up of cells, and our brains act in molecular ways with molecular rules. But what's remarkable to me is that a creature made up of cells was able to discover the cell, that a brain that works by means of atoms and molecules was able to discover the atom. And we're the only species capable of doing that. And to me, that makes human life exceptional. The late Carl Sagan liked to point out that as living things, we are literally made up of stardust mm-hmm. because the elements that make life possible are elements that were formed in the fusion fires of stars. That's where the carbon, 
the nitrogen, the oxygen comes from, mm -hmm. from the starting material of hydrogen and helium. So we are literally made up of stardust. Now, Sagan was, again, not a religious person. In fact, an outspoken atheist. But one of the things he liked to say is that we matter to the cosmos because we are a part of the cosmos that has woken up and has begun to become aware of itself and to study itself. So to me, that's human exceptionalist exceptionalism. And at least one review of my book said this amounts to chest something, thumping. We're not that special. We should take care to realize that other creatures are valuable too. That's a misreading of what I wanted to say. Um, we are the only creatures on this planet who can understand what we are doing to this mm -hmm. planet. And that gives us the unique and the special responsibility to fix it and to make sure that we preserve this planet in a way that our children and grandchildren can enjoy and actually in a way that promotes survival. Um, this is where climate change comes into this. Other species are affected by climate change, but we are the only ones who really know that it's happening and know why it's happening. And that gives us alone among species responsibility to basically reverse that process and to save the biodiversity in this planet. For me, yeah, and that's why we're at center stage, and that's one of the main reasons I wrote this book. And the the reason that's important to distinguish, because a lot of people might be out there thinking, wait a minute, I know we're special. I know humans are special. The reason it's important to actually come up with a, a logical argument for why we are a, special on this planet, we're not just another ape who doesn't think, who just acts on instinct. The reason it's important to specify that and to come up with an argument for it is because a lot of anti-evolution skeptics sort of use that as as fuel for the fire they say wait a minute these these evolutionary theorists are saying that you're not any more special than a snake or an ape but you know you're more special than a snake or an ape don't you and, and that sort of breeds this angst towards evolutionary theory because your words get mistreated and they get mistreated in the sense that you're looking at other hu other humans and you were saying, you're not any special. You could go die in the forest. No one cares. You know, the sun could blow up tomorrow and kill us all. And we are no more special than an elk. We're no more special than a snake or a dog. And I completely agree with your argument that there is something incredibly special about the fact that we can do science. Science may very well be the thing that separates intelligent life from non-intelligent life. If you want to actually, you know, form a distinction between those two words... The ability to learn from one's environment and to, to make predictions about the future within the confines of what you can actually do. Again, you can't predict everything. But to be able to make predictions, to understand some fundamental structures, whether it be of the brain, of the cell, of, the, of a star, of the universe, that might very well be the thing that separates intelligent life from non-intelligent life. Yeah, and, and, and I, as a biologist, I would resist what you said just a little bit. Because many of the creatures that you mentioned are indeed intelligent, uh, capable of learning, uh, capable of understanding outcomes. Um, I have an Australian shepherd at home as a pet dog. He's one smart dog. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Believe me, he makes a study of my movements every morning and every evening. He knows what I'm about to do. He's watched me. He can predict things. Uh, so he's an extraordinary animal. Um, but he's not about to develop any mathematics. Uh, he's not about to discover special or general relativity. You should be worried uh, he if also, he starts doing it, though. You should. Yeah. You I might will, be I'll, rich, actually. You might be yeah, rich. I'll, yeah. Yeah. I'll let, I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the other thing is you mentioned about the apes. Um, uh, all of the primates are very intelligent and the great apes um, intelligent to the point uh, where they can be taught rudimentary use of language and symbols mm-hmm. uh, uh, bands of various primates do indeed have what we can recognize as moral codes um, the uh, they will enforce certain rules so you certainly see the glimmers of all these things um, it's not as though there's a magical twinkle event that endowed us with what we have um, it was a gradual process because that's how evolution works but there is absolutely no mistaking the fact that just as Sagan said uh, we are a part of the cosmos that has become awake and aware. Um, and that's what makes us different. Yeah. I, w- I want to transition, if you don't mind, back to some topic that we were discussing earlier. I want sure. to talk about science denialism in today's culture. Science denialism is so big today, sp- specifically for my the sorts of things that I'm involved in. Donald Trump denies climate change. I'm sure you've seen the recent uh, tweet of his. Maybe not. I'll, I'll read it for the viewers. His tweet says, Brutal and extended cold blast could shatter all records. Whatever happened to global warming? Question mark. This flat earthers are growing. Uh, the flat earth society is growing. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm unconvinced whether or not that's genuine or whether or not that's people trying to be clever. Because my cover photo on Twitter for the longest time is like a really cool graphic of a flat earth with water falling off of the side. And I would not consider myself a, 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 you know, a member of the flat earth society. I just thought it, it was, you know, it looked nice. So I saw people the other day saying that NASA is lying about landing the InSight probe on Mars. They're saying, well, uh, you know, if they landed the probe on Mars, why don't they have video of the landing? This was sort of the, the popular argument I've seen. And I think that these people don't understand two things. Number one, if you've ever gone to a Starbucks and tried, tried to use the Wi-Fi, you'd understand the Wi-Fi is not very good. Now, imagine going to Mars and trying to use the Wi-Fi. Okay, it's really hard to transmit HD video from the surface of Mars to, to an orbiter around Mars and then to the Earth. We would much rather do pictures that we could encode and then decode when they're back here in order to save space. You can't be shooting HD video across the solar system with reasonable speed. It would, you'd, you'd spend eight years just trying to construct you know, a 30-second video. And also, here's the other thing. This is an exercise for the viewer. If you are someone who believes that we should be taking um, videos of, of landings, I want you to take out your phone and turn the camera on, the video camera. And uh, record a video. Hold the phone still. Now shake it violently for 20 seconds. Like really violently. And move it back and forth as fast as your arm can go. And then tell me if you can see anything very good on that video. I think the answer would be no. And even if you had a really good camera, I think the answer would still be no. Landings are violent. Landings are really violent. They, They don't go nicely. Have you ever been in a parachute? I haven't, but I can imagine it doesn't. It, it's not very gentle. Yeah, I, I would add, by the way, that we do have videos of the moon landing of Apollo Eleven. 
We do, um, yes. Yes. Yeah. And you can see the dust kicking up mm-hmm. and, and everything else. And with respect to the notion that the recent Mars landing was faked, look at the control room, okay? Look at all those people in their jubilation. Mm-hmm. They are, if it's a conspiracy, this is the most effective conspiracy I have ever seen, that all of these people are keeping the secret, and they're also brilliant actors, Mm-hmm. Because every single one of them, to the last woman and the last man, is jubilant out of their ever-loving minds. Yes, and also, um, why, why would you lie about wanting to measure the seismic activity on Mars? I, no, could, it, it, I, could, I could maybe wrap my head around some people's, like, we wanted to, you know, fake the, the space race. We wanted to fake the moon landing so that we won the space race, so that we could end the Cold War or something or another. There's actually motivation there. What's the motivation for landing on Mars to measure seismic activity? I don't understand. But the point is, the point is, I see all of this denial of science. It's so pervasive. And part of the reason it's so pervasive is because you have someone like Mike Pence, who is a supporter of intelligent design. He's, uh, you know, he, he hasn't talked about it much recently. But early in his career, back in you oh, yeah. know, the early 2000s, he would say things like – this is a quote I have of him. Uh, the Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And I believe that, Mr. Speaker – he's speaking to the Speaker of the House – I believe that God created the known universe, the earth, and everything in it, including man. And also I believe that someday scientists will come to see that not only the theory of intelligent design provides the only – even remotely rational explanation for the known universe. So the man who is the vice president of the United States is a, is a person who is just an avid denier of science. So my question is, do you still see evolution denial as pervasive as it was, say, 40 years ago? Is it growing okay. or is it shrinking? Well, I'm gonna. I, I'm gonna have to. I'm afraid I'm gonna have to make this sort of the last exchange. Okay. Okay. Um, because we've gone on for quite a while, and this has been an absolute delight. Um, but um, l- let me tell you something that's interesting, um, and that is on a regular basis, the Pew Foundation (PEW) mm-hmm. does surveys of Americans' attitude towards all sorts of things. And in 2015, they did a survey of American attitudes towards science. Um, it's freely available on the internet. It, it's an eye opener. And they asked questions about Americans' attitudes towards various scientific things, such as vaccines, genetically modified food, evolution, climate change, and a couple of others. And for the very first time, when they asked about evolution, they broke down the responses by age group. Now, Americans usually, um, when they're asked about evolution, they usually split around 40 40 with 15 or 20% undecided in the middle. And overall, that's about how this came out as well. However, they broke it down by age group. And to me, the astonishing thing is when you looked at the how, how younger Americans, ages 18 through 29, answered the question, 75% of them accepted that evolution was true. Mm-hmm. Now, that's close to a European number for this. And what it tells me is the last 10 or 15 years of science education in our schools with an increased emphasis on science is actually getting across to people. So with respect to the younger generation, acceptance is actually rising. The Gallup poll also does a year-by-year survey of attitudes towards evolution. The number of people who believe that human beings were created about 10,000 years ago in pretty much their present form is at an all-time low 
with respect to that survey. So I think minds, I'm an optimist by nature. I think minds are being changed. Mm-hmm. They, they're being changed gradually. And I think ultimately that we, and by we, I mean the scientific community, can win this fight. But it's important that everyone in the scientific community um, basically participate in public discourse, participate in public life. Um, it's extraordinary to me how reticent most scientists are to get involved in public affairs, to show up at a local school board meeting and speak on behalf of effective science education, to lobby a state board of education or their local legislators. I think that we're getting over that. In other words, I think the scientific community is beginning to realize that we have to, we can't leave the public square open to the science deniers. We have to occupy it as well. And I'm heartened by the fact that this year, we had a record number of people with scientific credentials running for Congress, mm-hmm. and it looks like a, a, a record number of them got elected. So I hope uh, that that voice is continuing, is going to be able to, to basically occupy the public square, win the battle, and make sure that America reclaims its position as the most science-friendly country in the world. Like I said, I'm an eternal optimist, but I hope that's where we're headed. I hope you're right. Uh, before before we go, do you want to plug anything, Ken? Um, well, um, very happy to plug the Human Instinct, mm-hmm. uh, which is published by Simon and Schuster. Um, many uh, 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 many younger people will know me through textbooks. So if you've been listening to this and you made it all the way to the end, if when you were in high school you used a biology book that had an elephant on the cover, or that had a dragonfly on the cover or that had a bright red parrot, a scarlet macaw on the cover. Um, I wrote those books. All of those are called Biology by Miller and Levine. And uh, when Joe and I are asked, what's our purpose in writing a book? Uh, Naturally, um, we both believe that biology, uh, no offense to you, is the most interesting of all the scientific fields. And we want to convince people of that. But more importantly, we wanted to establish Um, uh, in American high school students, a sense of the wonder and the beauty and the delight of science itself. And I hope to to some extent uh, our books and our public public, uh, workshops and so forth have helped to do that. And uh, Brendan, I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and to your listeners. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. We we appreciate having you. You've been great. I'm gonna go buy your book right now. I'm going to Barnes and Noble right <laughs> after this. I'm gonna grab Thanks myself a, a coffee and get that get that book and start reading. I appreciate you being here, man. Thanks a lot, and we're out. <laughs> <laughs>